Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Baylog. Merry Christmas and welcome to another episode of 20 Minute Bible Studies. Yes, Merry Christmas. And in honor of the celebration of our Lord's birth, we're going to break from our usual format and spend 20 minutes on a few fun facts about Christmas that may surprise you. Let's get right to it. Okay, fact number one. No one knows for sure when Jesus was born. The Bible doesn't give a month or even a year when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The best scholarship puts the year somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., as for the month, some have tried to use biblical and historical evidence to argue December couldn't be the right month. For instance, they say shepherds would not have been in the fields in December, or the Romans wouldn't have had the census in winter when travel would be difficult. But none of these arguments are a slam dunk, though. And they are equally strong arguments based on evidence to suggest December could be right. So how did December 25th get chosen anyway? Well, according to Jewish Talmudic tradition, all righteous men died on the same day they were conceived. Around 200 AD, influential Christians took this assumption and combined it with the accepted date of the death of Jesus, which was the 14th of Nisan or March 25th, and simply did the pregnancy math. That's why December 25th was chosen as the date to celebrate Christ's birthday, which, by the way, none of the early Christians would have done. Yes, later the same logic was used to set March 25th for the Catholic Feast of Annunciation, or the feast for the day the angel Gabriel told Mary she would conceive and bear a child. And you can find that in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, or Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Now, we're sure you've heard about another claim, which is that December 25th was chosen because it happened to coincide with a pagan holiday. But it turns out that's not true. Okay, let's go to fact number two now. And we will see here that Christmas is not based on a pagan holiday. A few points. The claim is that Christmas is celebrated on December 25th because pagans observe the winter solstice on that day. Now, it's true there was a major pagan holiday celebrated around that time called Saturnalia. It's also true that when Christianity became the main religion of the Romans, they did certain things to make the religion more palatable to pagans. For instance, they built churches where pagan temples used to be, and they elevated Mary and the saints, so they would be more like the gods and goddesses pagans knew. Right, but this was after December 25th was chosen as the birthday of Jesus Christ. Christianity wasn't even a tolerated religion in Rome until about 100 years after December 25th was first selected as the date for Christ's birth. And Saturnalia, which, by the way, is where we get the, the planet Saturn from, it's this, the god Saturn, wasn't on December 25th. It was a multi-day party, sounds like a good time, from December 17th to the 23rd, which meant that by the 25th, they would probably only have a hangover. 
It's funny. So there was a smaller pagan festival called Sol Invictus, which means unconquered sun, S-U-N, that fell on December 25th. But this holiday wasn't created until about 70 years after December 25th was even chosen. So no, early Roman Christians did not make a pagan winter festival into Christmas. Fact number three, there's no need to put the Christ back in Xmas. This one's interesting. Is it a plot by modern atheists to replace the word Christ with an X? Some folks might think that, but the truth is that this practice was started by devout Christians, Christian scribes, about a thousand years ago. The reason for the X is simple. It's the first letter of the word Christ in Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written. It's pronounced key, and the full Greek word is pronounced Christos or Christas. On a related note, before the cross became the main symbol of Christianity, several other symbols were used. One of these was something called the Kiro. Basically, it's an X, the letter X, and then the letter R. The first two letters of Christos drawn together. So imagine an X, an R, I-S-T-O-S. And it's an interesting symbol that sort of looks like a crucifix. Yes, uh, I recently had an interaction with, um, with a Facebook troll. Uh, we, we, do get a lot of, we do get a lot of them, yes. And uh, he thought he was upsetting me by typing X-T-I-A-N or X-Gen instead of Christian. And then, of course, I informed him about these facts and, you know, I, I won the troll battle that day. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Switching now from historical facts to some Bible facts, fact number four, there's no reason to believe there were only three wise men. If you look at a nativity scene, there are usually three wise men. We even have a Christmas carol called We Three Kings. But that isn't really based on anything that's in the Bible. Matthew 2.1 just says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? The Bible doesn't number them. Yeah, the idea there were three arose because there were three categories of gifts. But it's likely that these wise men numbered more than three. Now, fact number five. Jesus wasn't a newborn when the wise men reached him. You know, when we see an, a nativity scene, it always shows us the wise men around the manger with the newborn Jesus inside in that manger, right? In this little barn. But that isn't consistent with the Bible timeline. The shepherds would have been there, but the wise men wouldn't have arrived until much, much later. That's why Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says, quote, after coming into the house, not a stable, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And they, meaning these wise men who were bringing gifts, bearing gifts. Now, King Herod's decree also suggests Jesus could have been as old as a toddler by this time because Herod himself sent his men to kill, quote, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. And that's key there because you could, you could read about it. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. So if you kind of make the assumption, these wise men came from the Far East and they followed the North, North Star and they eventually, it hovered and they came underneath the home where Mary lived, Mary and Joseph. And there we see now this scene and you have to assume it probably took a couple of years. And I'm thinking, and I'm sure you're thinking this too, that Herod must have asked them, how long has it been since you saw the star? And they probably said around two years. And that's why he ordered for all two-year-olds to be murdered. Yeah, just to be safe. 
And, uh, you know, speaking of that and Matthew 2.16, if you want to maintain your joyful holiday spirit, don't read that section of Scripture because basically there was a holocaust of, of murdered babies at that time. And, and uh, it, it quotes the Old Testament in that passage and talks about the despair of the mothers at that time. It's really a, quite a horrible story. This is true. Story. Um, okay, so let's get back in the spirit. <laughs> Fact number six says, the gifts the wise men brought were symbolic and prophetic. And this is very important. This is one of the deeper truths about Christmas that we love to talk about. The gifts the wise men brought weren't random, and they weren't just gifts. They were actually types or symbols. Um, some would say foreshadows. And they each reveal a prophecy. It's pretty obvious what the gift of gold was meant to prophesy you know, that uh, Jesus Christ would be king, right? Remember, these are wise men who had studied the prophecies, and they had seen the sign of the Messiah in the sky, which is why they came. So their gift of gold obviously signified that baby Jesus was the promised king. But what about frankincense and myrrh, Andy? Okay, so let's look at frankincense. Frankincense, as the name suggests, was a type of incense. And if we go to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 2, the priests of Israel, or the sons of Aaron, were instructed to use it, frankincense, to create a soothing aroma to the Lord. It was incense. They were burning incense. Now, some traditional Christian denominations, the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, do this to this day, till today. And what we see there, when they do use frankincense or, or whatever it is as an incense, that the priests swing a smoking ball, which they call a thurible. And inside of it is actually the burning incense. And there's holes that, that are in that, and then it kind of, you know, spreads out throughout the room. Now, this gift is signified or signified that Jesus would be our high priest. If we look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, it puts it this way. Having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Yes, and Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 12 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God as our high priest. So that's the gift of frankincense. And as for myrrh, this was a spice that was used in burial preparations. And this signified, or signified, as you said it, Andy, which I like, that Jesus would die for our sins. And we see this prophecy fulfilled in John 19. Yeah, I'll pick up verse 39 here, and it reads, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And then verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, linen wrappings, with these spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, before going on, I just want to mention here, if you could visualize what's going on, myrrh was kind of like an embalming fluid, and I'm assuming that they used that when they wrapped the linens around the dead body to preserve it, maybe to keep bugs or to keep the body from, you know, deteriorating, at least maximizing how long it would last. Right. Now. Besides being a king and high priest, Jesus was a prophet, as foretold in Deuteronomy. Jordan, read that for us. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
You know, Andy, and like every prophet before him, he was killed by the Jewish leadership. And saying so is actually what got Stephen stoned by the Sanhedrin. We see that in Acts 7.52. Stephen says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So you can see that he uh, did arouse their anger, which is why at the end of that speech, he is stoned to death. So this, the funeral spice of myrrh foreshadowed Jesus Christ's betrayal and his murder. Yeah, Jordan, bring it all together. We see the three gifts of the wise men align perfectly with Jesus's three offices during three phases of time in his life, past, present, and future. In the past, he was the prophet who died outside the city gates of Jerusalem, and that's symbolized by the myrrh or the embalming fluid. In the present, he is our high priest, and right now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, and that's symbolized by frankincense. In the future, he will be our king and the king of kings during his 1,000-year reign, and that's symbolized by gold. And another quick tidbit, gold was a currency back then that whoever heard these words or read these words understood that it only pertained to royalty. It was only someone who was part of a royal family that could ever actually see or actually handle gold as a currency. Everyone else dealt with silver or something else. Yeah, so now you know gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they weren't just gifts that each had a prophetic symbolism that was fulfilled or will be fulfilled. Now comes fact number seven, our final fact, which is that Christmas reminds us that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King of Kings. That's obvious, but it also should remind us of the promise that we can be kings. In his letter to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That's Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. And later in verse 29, he adds, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So Andy, what do these verses promise us? Well, we obviously love these verses. We often quote them. It's, uh, it's something that I think many Christians, I'm sure, who read the Bible have probably read these and might not have taken the time to study them, unfortunately. So what we want to do is we want to be able to break down critical scriptures like this to open your heart and open your mind to deeper truths that most Christians don't know about. You know, praise God, most Christians should be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ because it's just something that we do as humans. You know, we appreciate that God gave his only begotten son into the world. And if it wasn't for his birth, then he would not have been the perfect propitiation or the, the, the person that would be the in-between for us one day when we get judged, you know, so that everybody can understand where I'm going with this. One day we're going to see our maker, right? And as Christians, you know, we have that peace of mind. We have that faith that we are going to be in this courtroom with God the Father. But we do have, according to scripture, Jesus as our mediator. He's going to be our attorney. And when we go before that, that throne and, and at that judgment seat, God the Father, I'm sure, is going to ask Jesus, our attorney, 
who is this man? Do you know him? Well, isn't he guilty of, of sin? Didn't he do so many bad things? Didn't he, you know, break the speeding limit or he didn't pay his fines or what have you? And Jesus is going to say, no, it wasn't Andy. No, it wasn't the listener of Mysteries of the Kingdom or 20-minute Bible studies. It wasn't Jordan. It was me, God. I did it. I deserve to be punished. And that's why Jesus is considered our replacement. That's what he did. He came as a man. He was 100% man and God. And he took the place of us. And for all those reasons, I believe it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas. Yeah, and I think, you know, talking about what Paul is talking about here in Romans too, it's some really interesting language he uses. For example, he says that first that the Holy Spirit testifies within our spirits that we're children of God. So when you were saved, you became a part of God's family. But then he goes deeper with it, and he talks about things that we've touched on in the past, which is this whole idea of adoption, redemption, inheritance, right? So redemption is what you discussed just now, which is the salvation part. Adoption in the, in the Jewish sense, the, the ancient uh, Israel sense, was um, when, when, you're, when you receive the ability to have the rights of an heir, and then, of course, inheritance would apply to, you know, like the second and third sons, and, and in this case, daughters, if we don't genderize it. But basically what he's saying is that if we're children, we also have the potential to be heirs of God. And then he says, fellow heirs with Christ, meaning that we can, we can receive a portion of the, first, of the inheritance of the father, which typically went in the greatest portion to the, to the firstborn son, which, which he equates Jesus Christ with here, but then can get distributed through the other, the other children of God, right? So, uh, and he makes it conditional. He says, if indeed we suffer with him. So it isn't something that you automatically get when you're saved. It's not the gift we're talking about. It's the prize port, portion of it. So you can earn a piece of Jesus Christ's inheritance, essentially, is what he's saying. And you can be a co-heir with him, which is why I think what, you know, what we said earlier is that Christmas not only points to the King of Kings, but also that we can, we can be kings, one of the, one of the uh, kings underneath him, if we, if we do good works and bear fruit and let, let uh, God operate through us. Yeah, that's, uh, amen. That's very well said, Jordan. Very well put. And you know, I loved the word that you used there, potential. You know, you, breaking down that verse, you said that, that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That basically is saying that there's something in us that tells us we're saved. There's something that gives us a peace in our heart knowing that we're Christian. Not that we're, you know, unfortunately what the world might say is, you know, oh, you think you're better or you're special? No, because according to scripture, I didn't do anything. God put that in my heart. I didn't, I didn't find God. You know, I didn't find myself or do anything to earn everlasting life. Jesus did it all. It's just that when I heard the gospel, it made sense to me, and I believed it. I humbled myself and accepted the fact that I'm a sinner, and I have to also accept the fact that I'm going to have to answer to a, a higher being one day. You know, atheists call it intelligent design. I call it God the Father. Right. So I'm going to have to answer to God for that. And I love that you said that because we are children, and we know this because the Spirit himself tells us, that we have the potential one day to be heirs of God. Heirs meaning that one day we will inherit something. Like you said, not that we just get it. We have to, it's conditional. We have to earn it. And probably the best way I could think for our listeners at home, especially those who are new listeners who've never heard this gospel, which is extremely biblical, it's throughout the Old and New Testament, is to understand that 
Just because we are saved doesn't give us a license to sin. Just because we have our, our salvation eternally secure because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary doesn't make it okay. We should always fear and have reverence for God. Like it says in Proverbs, it says that, you know, a wise man fears God, you know? So it, it's, it's the wise thing to do. And the reason is not because I might lose my salvation or forfeit my salvation and end up in the lake of fire with Satan one day. Because God, no parent would do that to their child. Right. But what God is trying to tell us here is that if you live righteously, if you are obedient to your father and your mother and respectable, and you carry on the traditions which your parents love you, they want good for you, and you become a, a great human being and you, you grow up to be mature and make your parents pr proud, that there's a great inheritance. And that's what God is trying to say. So what this does, I think, for all Christians is it these verses, it reinforces that for the words that you used earlier, that potentially we could be kings with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, which basically means live righteously, live as holy as you can, stay in the word of God, try to find a good Bible-based church, and be obedient to what you read. Yeah, and really, if you look at verse 829 in that light, he's really saying, just get out of the way, because this is all preordained. You are preordained, you are predestined to be saved and to inherit if you can just get yourself out of the way and let God do his purpose in you. He says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's in other words, basically do good works, do what God's called you to do, right? To, to suffer with Christ. We're, pre we're predestined to do that. And then... You know, the, the purpose in all that is so that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, it was always God's plan that there be co-heirs with Christ. Amen. So just get out of the way. Um, okay, so to recap uh, what we learned today, the seven things, um, these are seven surprising facts about Christmas that you may not have known. I'll, I'll recap the first few, Andy. Number one, we don't know Jesus' actual birthday, but December 25th is a good guess, and that's about 18 centuries old, that guess. Number two, Christmas is not a pagan holiday. That's a myth. And number three, it's also a myth that Xmas takes the Christ out of Christmas because X in Greek is just shorthand for Christ. Um, number four, as for those nativities, they're all wrong, unfortunately. There probably weren't three wise men. And number five, the wise men weren't at the manger anyway. They went to a house when Jesus Christ was a little bit older. But they were important, Jordan, and mainly because the three gifts that they brought were symbolic prophecies with deep meaning for kingdom seekers, and that's point number six. And finally, number seven, speaking of which, if you are a kingdom seeker, you should celebrate the birthday of Jesus by looking forward to his coming kingdom and remembering that you have a mission. We as Christians all have a mission to qualify to become one of the kings under the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That's seven fun facts about Christmas you can enjoy sharing with your family and friends this holiday season. And that is our lesson. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. And may God bless you and your loved ones this holiday season. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace.